First Peter chapter three, verse eight. First Peter chapter three, verse eight. Gracious living. We're going to be looking tonight at extending grace to one another. You may remember from last week. Anybody remember last week what we talked about? Marriage, right? If you happen to miss it, what a, a great section of scripture. Men, it'll save us a lot of heartache, uh, dwelling with our wives in a, in a way of understanding. And I want to look at the context because we flow uh, from marriage right into extending grace uh, to one another. And I think they're very much connected in God's word. And grace is the oil that makes relationships work. I want to say that again. Grace is the oil that makes relationships work. There's a promise in our text tonight that if you want to love life and see good days. Who doesn't want to love life and see good days? I mean, it almost seems too good to be true, like it's some advertisement campaign instead of a promise in God's word. But God says this is the key to be able to love life and to see good days is to extend grace to one another. When we think of all of the grace that God extends to us in order to be in relationship with one another, and if we really want to be in relationship with others in a healthy way, we want to extend grace to each other as well. So let's look at verse 1. Let's just read from verse 1 down to verse 6 and 7, and then we'll get into our text in verse 8. Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, that they without a word may be won by the conduct of of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and, and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. There it is, heirs together of the grace of life. We have received God's grace, and so we can live in an atmosphere of extending God's grace. The context from chapter 2 is submission to government, submission to masters, and then submission to husbands. It's all about relationships. And relationships can cause us a great amount of joy, can't they, when they're going well. But there's nothing that can really compare to it when we're in harmony in relationship in our home, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. But there's also a great level of pain when relationships are off. Amen? Amen. It breaks us. It, it hurts us. It causes the day to get exponentially long. And the reason why I want to call this gracious living is because I hope in me and in us that God changes our lifestyle, that we actually begin to have a lifestyle of extending God's grace to others, of being merciful. Do you know that grace is so powerful? Yeah, I was just meditating and thinking upon the times that people have been relationally gracious to me. 
And it's had such impact in me. Even in times when I was a teenager and I should have had the hammer dropped on me and my parents chose to be gracious, I don't know why. And that caused me to stop and look at them and go, are you sure you should be ripping my head off right now? To times with, with Amber when I don't say things right or I, I vent and I hurt her with my words and she's gracious in, in forgiving me or getting frustrated with my kids and having to apologize to my kids. It's amazing how gracious kids are. You know, to look them in the eye and say, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have been frustrated with you. That was on me, that was on dad, that, that wasn't on you. And to, to have them say, dad, I forgive you and, and be able to give me a big hug. I mean, there, there's power in that. My, one of my favorite stories is Les Mis. Probably you've maybe read the book or watched, watched the movie. I have not read the book. I'm not that good of a reader, but we do have a great audio copy in our home, and we've listened to it in the, in the mini, minivan. That, and the premise of this book is you have this man who's in prison, and he breaks out of prison, and as he's trying to escape, he finds refuge in a priest's home. And he steals these valuable candlesticks from the priest. And he gets caught, and the police bring him back to the priest's home. And what does the priest do? He says, no, this was a gift. I gave it to him. And he showed him grace. And his life would have been over at this point if the priest wouldn't have showed him grace. And these are gold candlesticks, and he's able to then sell the candlesticks to be able to begin to live. And it's that moment in the story where you see the power of grace. Ultimately, what's changed my life more than anything else is God's grace. You know, realizing that he loved me when I wasn't a sinner, when I didn't want anything to do with him. The fact that today God doesn't give me what I deserve. It's not a very pretty picture inside of here, inside of this heart, and inside of, of this mind, my own battles with sin, my own depravity. And if God were to give me what I deserve today, man, it would be a really bad day. Yet God chooses to be gracious. This morning in staff devotions, uh, Pastor Dan Johnson shared with us about the name of God and very great devotion and we find in Exodus 34, God declares his name to Moses. And he says that he's gracious, he's long-suffering, and he's merciful. The very character and nature of God, though God is just and God is holy, is that he's gracious and he's merciful and he's long-suffering. And to be able to live in that grace, to really understand God you're in relationship with me and you're blessing me based upon your unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor through the cross, then starting to lower our expectations of those that we're in relationship with. Let's take theology and make it practical. Do we believe the Bible here at Rocky Mountain Calvary? Can I get an amen? amen. What does the Bible say? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means us, that means me, that means our families. And sometimes we have an expectation of our spouse is somehow they're not part of Romans 3.23. Somehow our children are not part of Romans 3.23. Sometimes our boss is not part of 
Romans 3.23. Look out. Sometimes we don't expect our church to be Romans 3.23 sinners. But guess what? Our church is full of sinners. Your pastoral staff is full of sinners. Stay around long enough and you will get hurt by the church. Why? Because we're sinful people that are forgiven by the Lord. But we have such this high standard for everyone around us. And sometimes our standard for others is higher than what we impose upon ourselves. And when we get into this text tonight, it's really saying, okay, lower that standard to a biblical standard that they're sinners. And I'm not saying we don't deal with sin, that we don't confront sin, that we understand the damage of sin. But there's entirely different if it's with an attitude of grace and the attitude of how God deals with my sin. If I could deal with other people's sin the way that God deals with me, whoa, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? That would be powerful. The amazing way that Jesus is able to deal with the sin and confront it in truth, but be able to extend grace. So that's the goal. That's the challenge is gracious living. In verse 8, it says, finally, all of you be of one mind. So in conclusion to this section about relationships, be of one mind. To be in harmony. This is what can bring us together as husbands and wives. This is what can bring us together as a church family to walk with other believers is that we are like-minded. We, in fact, have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2 tells us. And what was the mind of Christ? To glorify the Father. He lived to glorify the name of the Father. So if we can rally together in our relationships and say, let's live for God's glory, we can be like-minded. We can come to that place of saying we can agree on these things. I want to read Ephesians chapter 4. You can turn with me over there if you'd like. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It tells us all the things that we have in common that keep us in a place of harmony. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of your calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's worth fighting for. It's in it, worth endeavoring to keep this bond of peace because there's one body, one Spirit, in which you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That's a lot in common, isn't it? That's a lot to bring us into harmony. Going back to our text, it says, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. This is gracious living. When we have compassion. The word compassion, it speaks of being aware of someone's need to the point where you feel it in your gut. Say, oh man, I... I feel for you. I genuinely feel for you and what you're going through. Jesus had compassion, didn't he, upon the multitudes? He saw them as a sheep without a shepherd to the point where he wanted to feed them. He wanted to care for them. He wanted to heal them. And the compassion was so strong that it moved him to action. In the Old Testament, it speaks of God's compassion in Psalms 103. It says, as a father pities his children... So, those, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. God knows we're dirt clods. 
We're just but dust. That's it, right? We're but dust in the text. Little interpretational license there. <laughs> and so he pities us. He says, I know their frame, that they're made out of dust. And to be able to have an attitude of compassion, you know, with, with your spouse, when was the last time you had an attitude of compassion towards them instead of one of, can't you get your act together? You know, with our children, to approach them with compassion, to try to remember the season of life that they're in and the things that they're going through. To have an attitude of compassion towards your boss. What? Compassion towards the boss, you know? The boss is the one that's supposed to be thinking about me, Right? But maybe what's going on in her life or his life and to have compassion towards them. Maybe that person that's making us angry in traffic, if we only knew what was going on in their lives, going, well, you need this space on I-25 much more than I do. You, know, you need this space on Academy or Powers Boulevard. And, and if I could spend 24 hours in your shoes, then I would start to have compassion towards you. That, that's grace. That's, our flesh doesn't like compassion. Our flesh says, I'm going to give somebody what they deserve. I'm going to challenge them that they need to step up and, and do better. And God says, have compassion for one another and love as brothers. I like this. Love as brothers is, there is a loyalty that is fierce among family, isn't there? Now, I have an older brother. He's 22 months older than me. And he had a policy that he was the only one that was allowed to beat me up. Right. So anybody else that was going to try to beat me up, man, he, he would step in there. And God wants us to have that in relationships to say, we're going to love as brothers. We're going to be loyal. We're going to be committed to bear one another's burdens, to walk together through life. If you are married, that makes you brothers and sisters in Christ. And to be able to say, let's see each other in that context, in that light as well. This is the atmosphere that God desires for us to have with one another inside of the body here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. You're my brother in Christ. You're my sister in Christ. I'm, I'm there for you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to allow God's grace that's been extended into me to be extended into to your life as well. As you work with un unbelievers, you can have this kind of team concept, you can say, you know what, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to see you do well in life and ultimately try to point you to, to Christ. Be tenderhearted and be courteous. Ephesians 4.32 tells us to be kind and tenderhearted towards one another. Forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave us. Because the Father has forgiven me because of Jesus, then we can be tenderhearted, not because of the person, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus. If I'm struggling to extend forgiveness, I'm failing to see Jesus. We forgive be because of Jesus. And maybe the grace of God would begin to do a work in our hearts and lives tonight. He has us here for a reason to say, God, would you begin to make my heart tender? You know, is there a person that you're struggling with, with, you're saying, you know what, I will not accept a tender heart towards them. I will not allow God to cultivate the foul ground of my heart. I'm, I'm going to stay in this hard-hearted position. God doesn't put a clause here. He doesn't say, be tender-hearted to most. 
Be tenderhearted to those that are kind to you. He, he says, no, this is gracious living. I want you to be tenderhearted. When we get a concept of God from Genesis to, to Revelation, don't you see a tenderhearted father? And yes, he'll pour out judgment and he'll give justice, but he would much rather give mercy because he's longing for a restored relationship. He's longing for someone to turn to him in repentance so he can extend forgiveness. What's our heart condition? To be courteous is to be kind, to consider the other person better than ourselves. Being courteous goes such a long way. Even in dealing with truth and difficult things in relationship, if we'll do it in kindness, if we'll, we'll, if we'll take the opportunity to, to consider them, it makes the pill a lot easier to swallow, doesn't it? If a little bit of sugar can make the medicine go down, how far will kindness go to allow the truth to be swallowed? Allowing God to cause us to be courteous. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. This may be one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. When someone is evil towards you and they revile you, what do you want to do? I want to give it back to them tenfold. You know, every, everything inside of me says, man, you punk, right? You know, I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor and the church was across over by Harmony Bowl and I was doing young adults in junior high. We were meeting up at the park every Monday night as young adults. And I was pulling out of the parking lot and it gets a little packed over there. And this guy just flies through the parking lot and he just flips me off, you know, like, because I was in the wrong place. And I'm ready to go teach a Bible study. And everything inside of me just wanted to get on his bumper, rip him out of the car, and break his middle finger, right? You know? <laughs> right in that moment, I was just like, oh, I just want to go right now, you know? And it was like, I know it was the Holy Spirit saying, no. I have a prison ministry for you, but I don't want it to start like that. Right? <laughs> so thankfully I let it go and went to the park for, for worship and Bible study. But this is hard stuff, you know? How come the law says an eye for an eye? Because our tendency would say, if you took out one of my eyeballs, I'm taking out both of yours, right? That's justice in our, our sinful flesh. And God's saying, stop. Stop this. Stop this returning evil for evil. And if we'll choose to do this in a relationship, it will change the relationship. If we will trust God's word and choose gracious living, because what happens when evil, 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 evil? It's a downward spiral. And maybe you have a spouse that's not in the right place, and you have a legitimate case of saying, man, they are evil towards me. Maybe you have a difficult child and they're, they're evil towards you. Maybe you have a, a roommate and you can give the laundry list of how they're evil or a coworker or a neighbor. There's a dispute with a neighbor and somehow they have been evil towards you. And if you choose to simply stop being evil back to them, you're giving an opportunity for God to begin in the relationship. You're surrendering it over to the Lord. You're choosing to be the bigger person. You're choosing to be the mature person. Doesn't mean that there may not be stances that need to be taken or to approach them in truth, 
but we know our hearts. I'm not approaching them for restoration. I'm not approaching them to win a brother. Man, it's evil for evil. The boxing gloves are out. So we stop doing evil for evil, and then we do the contrary, and we actually give them a blessing. We bless them in Jesus' name, and when we do that, God's promises that we're going to inherit a blessing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read verses 8 and 9, I get really discouraged. <laughs> I go, man, that seems like a tall stack of pancakes to start living that way. And the only hope in this is Christ in us. Grace for salvation, but also grace for living. That Jesus could give us the strength to respond with blessing instead of cursing and reviling. Jesus, as he was on the cross, was reviled was crucified. And as he was crucified, mocked, had his beard ripped out, was spit upon the crown of thorns, he looks at those that are crucifying and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's grace. That's giving a blessing when they were bringing cursing. What if we took that, that one phrase and we adopted that with that person that's committing evil against us and said, Father, would you forgive them? Ultimately, they're offending you. Ultimately, they're not right with, with you. And then God promises to give a blessing. Do we want to know what that blessing is like? Do we want to get to a place where we say, man, I'm really interested in how God may bless and how may God may work if I choose to not return evil for evil. Gets really practical on how to do that in verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So if you want to love life and see good days, this is what you need to do. Is you got to shut the trap. Refrain the tongue from speaking evil. This may blow you away, but refrain in the Greek means cease or stop. Silence your mouth the way you silence your phone in the movie theater. Right? What do we do in the movie theater? I've spent my life savings to get in here. <laughs> so I'm going to silence my phone. Right? I'm not, I'm not going to be locked on my phone for this two hours that I'm in the movie theater. And we need, by God's grace in his our lives, to find the mute switch on our mouths. Someone is coming at us with evil and they're not in the right place. That's not the time to engage them. That's the time to refrain from speaking. Jesus was a lamb that was led to the slaughter and he didn't try to defend himself in that moment of his trial. He didn't try to convince them that they were wrong. He let his silence speak. He was just calm and he was, he was silent. So refrain the tongue and the lips from speaking deceit. Deceit's cunning treachery. That's what deceit is. So we want to stop speaking and we want to stop manipulating. I read an article today of a couple in Florida that shot themselves. They faked a home invasion for an insurance payout. That's when you know when you're desperate for some cash. Shot themselves in the leg. The guy shot himself in the leg and the lady shot herself in the arm just to try to claim an, an insurance policy. That, that's an extreme example of deceit, you know? But we may be involved in deceit on a, 
on a simpler level, where we're twisting the truth, where we're trying to work things to our own advantage. Why would God connect this to loving life and seeing good days? Because how many times have I ruined the day because of my mouth? The mouth has broken the day. The day would have gone okay. The day would have gone a lot better if I would have put a lid on it. Found a sock and stuck it in my mouth, right? In Proverbs, it tells us this about our, our tongues, that with our tongues, we can either bring life or death. Life or death is in the power of the tongue. That's not a name it and claim it verse. If I speak these promises, I'm going to have all of this money. This is just the reality of we can either be a death dealer with our tongues or we can speak life with our tongues. You know what's great hope in this? Is who wrote these words? Who wrote this chapter? Anybody know? Peter. This is Peter's epistle. Who had the hardest time controlling his mouth? Peter. Why do you think he wrote this? Because he ruined a lot of days in his life. And he's like, you know what? I wish I would have just stopped talking, right? That would have saved me so much trial. And again, this can only happen through the Lord and being in relationship with him and him helping us. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. There's a divine order here. I think that our actions will follow our mouths. So if our mouths stop speaking, stop speaking evil, start speaking life, then our actions will follow that. And a way to turn away from evil is to to change the way we speak, to allow God to get a hold of our hearts. Turn away from evil, do good, and then begin to seek peace and pursue it. And this is gracious living. God in his grace pursued fallen sinners. And so if we're going to adopt gracious living, we pursue broken sinners through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen? So how might this look to, to seek peace and pursue it? Say, what can I do that would bring peace in this relationship? What if I began to respond with kindness when they're responding in anger? Maybe there does need to be some sin that's confronted and talked about in gentleness, but but this is the goal. This is where, where grace can bring that oil to cause there to be reconciliation and things can be talked through and there's healing that takes place. This kind of peace only happens through pursuing it, through conversation, through prayer, for forgiveness, through working things out. And verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This brings us to prayer. This section of scripture causes us to say, Lord, help. And verse 12 is the promise that God's attention is towards you. If you want to take these verses and say, Lord, I want to Extend the grace that you've given to me. Lord, would you please help? His ears are open to you. It's interesting where the text goes in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? The cause of Christ can never be defeated. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. If you begin to commit to this extending grace and being a a peacemaker you might actually come upon hardship. You might actually suffer for doing good. We may suffer for doing righteousness, righteously. 
And that's where this text begins to go. It says, if you are living righteously and you're persecuted, you are blessed. The Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us attitudes to live with. And then at the very end, he says, this leads to persecution. If you live this way, you will be persecuted because you're following in the, in the footsteps of Christ. So this helps, this helps, because sometimes as Americans, I think we go, man, if I start to live in a gracious manner, then every relationship's going to be golden. And it's kind of our, our meal ticket to have an easy life. No, what's going to happen is you're living for God's glory, and you can say, you know what, I know by God's grace that I'm living in a way that pleases the Lord, and the relationships are in his hands. Did Jesus live this way? Yes. Did everybody love Jesus? No. (laughs) So we'd be having the wrong expectation if we start to live in the footsteps of Jesus and live graciously that everybody's going to love us. In in fact, it might lead to persecution. And Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. For my name's sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 15, even though people are coming against us, verse 15 declares, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord in our hearts? I think that's worship. That's setting the Lord apart. Saying, God, you're good. You're you're my father, you know? And as we're in that place of worship, then the Lord is sanctified in our hearts, and then we're told to always be ready to give a defense for anyone who asks for the hope that's in us. Context is really important. Verse 15 is not saying that we go around with the Bible and beat up everybody convincing them that they're going to be a Christian. We need to look for opportunities to share and we want to proclaim, proclaim the goodness of God. But this verse is not calling us to attack every false argument that comes against the name of God. This is saying be ready to give a defense to someone who asks, why do you have this hope inside of you? That's what it's talking about. So here we are having this hope because God is sanctified in our hearts and then they come around and they say, what's up with you? We're ready. We're prepared in that moment to say, well, it's Jesus and proclaim, proclaim the name of Jesus. And when we have those opportunities, what do we do? With meekness and fear. A good definition of meekness is me-ickness, right? So sometimes it's gentleness. It's power under control, When the Lord is giving us an opportunity to defend the faith, we want to do it with meekness and reverence. Verse 16, have a good conscience that they would defame you as an evildoer. Those who will revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. You just have a good conscience. You just have no no regrets. And as you're living for the Lord, then those who come against you, may they be the ones who are ashamed. Verse 17, for it's better if... It is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's much rather to be persecuted for righteousness' sake than to suffer for our own wrongdoing. And we've got this great example of Christ in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So if we're having a difficulty with suffering and suffering for righteousness, we've got to look at Christ. Christ suffered for righteousness. Christ was persecuted. And it's his death that brings about salvation. Jesus said in John 12, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He was speaking about his death. His brutal death upon the cross. His crucifixion. And as we're willing to suffer for righteousness sake, it brings life. But in order for us to walk down this path of gracious living, it's death to me, isn't it? It's me having to take up my cross. Me having to surrender my flesh. Me having to surrender that I don't get to have the last word. I'm not afforded the opportunity to return evil for evil. God wants me walking in compassion and meekness and being tenderhearted. Verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Speaking of Christ and his suffering, this text tells us that he went and he preached to some gnarly, nasty demons. These demons that were involved in the flood and that wickedness, they were disobedient until the, the flood, the divine long-suffering, waited until the days of Noah. So why in the world was Jesus preaching to this disobedient spirits? Not for their conversion. The demons don't believe. They didn't get a second chance. He was letting them know, based upon his death upon the cross, that they have no more authority, that they have been defeated. And there's some verses in the Bible that just make you go, hmm. Like this is one of those verses that's just tucked in scripture that you don't hear a lot about. Like what is exactly does this mean? I don't know. Except for Jesus preached to them, they were disobedient, and I believe he was declaring to them, you guys don't have any more authority. And this is neat to think about Christ being our intercessor because Satan is the one who condemns us. He ever lives to accuse us. And Jesus is going to Satan and to the demons. You don't have any authority over Eric anymore. I've paid for him. And when you start to feel the enemy bring guilt and shame and condemnation in your life, you need to remember Jesus even went to the extent of preaching to these demons so that they would know that there was no authority. Now there's this focus on Noah and his family and them being saved from the flood. And the flood is used as a foreshadowing, a type. There is also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the, fl- of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as the flood brought cleansing, the baptism in Christ, believing the gospel, his death and resurrection brings us a good conscience before God. What brings you a good conscience before God? Is it what you do? No, it's what Christ has done. It's, it's trusting in him. In verse 22, our last verse for tonight, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Christ is risen. He has defeated sin. He's defeated death. He's defeated the demonic realm. And he's seated at the throne room of God next to the Father. 
What's been fun about Daniel is to get a vision of the throne room of God, of the Father seated, Jesus seated next to him, places like Ezekiel chapter 1 that open to us the glory of God. And why is Christ seated at the throne? Because the work's been completed. Ephesians tells us that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Because we're in Christ, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So what are we going to do with this text? Hmm. Pretend like we never heard it and go home. (laughs) Because this is what I know. Life is going to provide us a lot of ample opportunities for gracious living. You're going to have some opportunities tonight. We're going to have opportunities tonight, this week, where evil is going to come against you. And what are you going to do? Are we going to return evil for evil? Are we going to begin to be compassionate, be courteous? Okay, I'm going to respond to that evil with a blessing. That takes a lot of work because a lot of times when someone is being evil towards us, when we're so-called giving them a blessing, it's really a slap back in the face in Christianese, isn't it? It's like, will the Lord bless you right now? Like, I'm, I'm praying for you. Right? Like, it's really hard to, like, really mean it and get to a place of, like, you're praying for them and asking that God would, would bless them and do, do a work in their lives. But this is what I know is blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. To the degree that we go around holding judgment to others, we're going to be held to that standard. Grace and mercy is good for the person receiving it, but it's, it's really freeing for us as well. Saying, Lord, I, I, I surrender to you. God, I can't do this. I, I know me. You know me. So, Lord, would you begin to help me to to live out grace? I guarantee in your marriage it'll make a big difference if there can be the oil of grace in that relationship. Quit expecting your spouse to be Jesus. They're not going to be Jesus. They're going to be a fallen sinner who Jesus loves, that God is in the business of transforming. You know, it's going to, help in our relationship with our kids if we can apply the oil of grace with them. Still training, still disciplining, still raising. Grace doesn't excuse any of those things, but to have the atmosphere of grace. You're going to enjoy church, the body. I'm talking about the body, not the building. If you will begin to apply the oil of grace. Be gracious to this group of people. Go, you know what? They They weren't meant to meet my needs, you know? If someone's not friendly in the hallway, by all means, come back. It wasn't personal. Who knows what's going on in their life? If you knew what kind of day they had, you'd be celebrating that they made it here, right? Be gracious to them. It's okay, you know? If you get close enough to somebody at Rocky Mountain Calvary and and they hurt you, don't give up on on Christ. Don't give up on on the church, Say, man, I'm so glad God's been gracious to me. I'm going to be gracious to to them as well. It's gracious living. We get to come to the communion table tonight and be honest before the Lord. Say, God, thank you for dying for me. Jesus, I remember your sacrifice. 
These are some things I need to get right with you and have a broken and constrite heart. And then I would encourage you, pray for that difficult person that you wish would go away. Right? Instead of wishing them away, is begin to pray for them. And even if your heart doesn't mean it yet, begin to pray blessing. What are things that you long for in your life? A greater understanding of Jesus. Healthy relationships in your family. Daily provision. Start there. Lord, would you bless them with a greater knowledge of Jesus? Would you bless them in their relationships with their family? Would you provide for their needs? And God says, if you do that, then you're going to inherit a blessing. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the grace that's been extended to us. And Lord, you know my heart and you know my struggles. And Lord, it's, it's very difficult to extend grace that, that I've received. Thank you that you don't beat up on us, that you don't condemn us, that you are with us, that you died for us. And please, as we celebrate communion, would you reveal your grace afresh to us? Lord, and, and would you help us to extend grace to others? Let's take a moment. Maybe there's two or three people that are extra challenging in our lives right now. Let's just pray for them and ask that God would bless them. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a neighbor, a coworker, an old friend, a deep hurt. Just lift that person up to the Lord. Ask that God would bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.